Post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental disorder which can develop after exposure to exceptionally threatening or horrifying events. This week's clinical review explains how doctors can identify these patients and what to do when the condition is suspected. I'm Sophie Cook, Clinical Reviews Editor for the BMJ, and to find out more about the etiology of the condition, I spoke to Jonathan Bisson, who's a Professor of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine in Cardiff. Post-traumatic stress disorder, as you say, is a mental disorder that occurs after exposure to exceptionally threatening or horrifying events. Um, I think it's very important to remember that uh, it can occur after a single traumatic event, such as a major disaster. I mean, the tragic events in Paris over last weekend really remind us of the single Big Bang event and the uh, potential that that has to precipitate post-traumatic stress disorder. But it also occurs after more prolonged exposure to trauma. And certainly, clinically, we often see this. For example, childhood um, adversities such as childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse during childhood are very common precipitants of post-traumatic stress disorder. And also, for example, serving in the military. So being at war um, is a key precipitant. And certainly we see a lot of veterans in our clinic who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. I guess the characteristic symptoms of re-experiencing of the traumatic events, for example, through nightmares or distressing recurrent thoughts about what happened with or without reminders of it, avoidance of thinking or talking about what happened, and also of reminders of it. So for example, somebody that's been involved in a nasty road traffic accident may involve driving totally or may involve driving on motorways or the road where the accident actually happened or may even be particularly frightened of something that is very specific to that incident. So, for example, a white car or white cars, if it was a white car that they were traveling in at the time of it. The third big group of um, symptoms has classically been hyperarousal symptoms, so sleeping difficulties, increased irritability, hypervigilance and an increased startle reaction, so being more jumpy in general is a, is a common factor. Um, and those have traditionally been felt to be the core diagnostic features of post-traumatic stress disorder. Do we, do we know if there are any successful ways to prevent people from developing post-traumatic stress following an event apart from the good social support that you mentioned? There have been several studies that have looked at very early interventions aimed at everybody to try and prevent the development of post-traumatic stress disorder, and none of them have been shown to be effective. So, for example, there have been techniques known as psychological debriefing or very early counselling techniques for everybody, and they don't seem to make any difference in terms of the outcome with respect to post-traumatic stress disorder. What has been shown to be effective in preventing post-traumatic stress disorder is picking up individuals who have significant symptoms two weeks or more after the traumatic event and then offering them a brief trauma-focused psychological treatment, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's been shown to reduce rates of post-traumatic stress disorder compared with individuals who receive either no treatment or um, supportive counselling rather than trauma-focused psychological therapy. But, but really for everybody involved, there's no evidence of anything that works. Indeed, there's even some suggestions that trying to intervene very early on um, and forcing people to go through the trauma in detail in a one-off session can cause harm to some people. 
Sarah Cosgrove developed PTSD in 2013 and has subsequently recovered. She's the patient co-author of the clinical review and joins us to talk about her experiences of the condition. Sarah, what was it that triggered your PTSD to start with and how did your symptoms manifest? So I was the victim of a serious violent assault in um, March 2013 and um, the kind of um, immediate aftermath of that, um, I was, I had to have some hospital treatment uh, for my physical injuries um, and uh, then sort of the legal process started because I decided I wanted to prosecute you know the, um, the the offender who'd done this to me and so I kind of entered this um, whole sequence of events with the police and giving statements and victim support came in and supported me and and I was okay actually I was very focused on on the court case and, and all of that um, and that sort of happened in I think that was the July of 2013 but then in the months that followed when all of that process had sort of been finished and it was all over and done with I think then the reality of what had happened um, when the other agencies had kind of stepped away really began to hit me and that's when I started to unravel. At what point did you decide it was time to seek help? Was there any specific event that sort of triggered your visit to see your GP? Um, I think it was my mum and dad said to me you're all right what's you know you don't look great um you look really tired and um and I sort of just sort of yes I'm fine I'm fine it's just this mm. new job you know I'm just sort of got a lot on my plate at the moment but I do remember one Saturday evening um uh coming into my uh sitting room and um it was in the sort of the autumn time the light was just going and I saw my, um, I saw someone in the in the window, and I dropped um, my cup of tea that I was holding, and it smashed and it went everywhere. And when I re- when I looked up, I realised that what I had seen was actually my own reflection mm. that had caused me to have such this sort of you know um, adverse reaction. And I thought this has now got to the point where I I need to do something. I can't be frightened in my own home anymore. Um, you know, I I need to get myself better. I need help. Jonathan, if we think back to some of the symptoms that you mentioned, some of them seem specific to PTSD, but others seem to be common in other disorders. How can a GP who's in their surgery pick up the signs and symptoms that should make them think specifically about PTSD? Well, in terms of the symptoms, things like nightmares, distressing re-experiencing of a traumatic event are the ones that would really sort of make you think about it. Often, though, because avoidance is a key feature, people don't like talking about those symptoms. They Mm. find it makes them distressed to talk about it. And so things like increased irritability, Mm. relationship difficulties, um, medically unexplained symptoms are common ways that people will initially present with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I think it's very important for GPs to be aware that um, individuals who've been involved in traumatic events may be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and asking some questions about re-experiencing in a gentle manner if they they know that and they're suspicious that it may be present. It's also worthwhile asking whether an individual has been exposed to a traumatic event when you're getting a mixture of psychological and physical symptoms that it's difficult to explain fully. Mm 
So maybe just having sensitive, direct questions aimed at sort of working out those who might be suffering from PTSD. Very much so. I think that a lot of people, a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers are quite relieved actually when they are questioned about this in a supportive, empathic manner and it helps them to disclose things which can be a big relief actually within itself. For example, um, survivors of childhood sexual abuse often feel very ashamed of what they, they've been through and how they are, which is another thing that makes them not want to disclose uh, the root cause, if you like, of their difficulties. Do we know why some people go on to develop PTSD and some people don't, given that some people do have traumatic events in their life and then don't go on to develop the condition? Well, the truth is that we increasingly know that humans are very resilient to traumatic events and that the majority of individuals involved in traumatic events don't go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Interestingly, the literature suggests that the only events that always causes more than 50% post-traumatic stress disorder, if you like, is rape. Other traumatic events, including um, terrorist attacks, um, major natural disasters, um, are associated with rates of less than uh, 50% of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the key factors that have been found to increase the risk um, can be divided up into pre-traumatic uh, factors, peritraumatic factors, and post-traumatic factors. Um, and interestingly, the pre-traumatic factors um, probably account for the least. But nevertheless, if you have had mental health difficulties in the past, if you have a family psychiatric history, if um, you have had a, a difficult childhood, if you um, have um, personality difficulties, then those are features pre-morbidly that would make you more vulnerable to develop post-traumatic stress disorder following a subsequent traumatic event. The nature of the traumatic event is important, so the more objectively severe a traumatic event, the more likely you are to go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and the more proximal you were to the traumatic event. So, for example, in a bombing, if you're directly involved in it, you're more likely to get post-traumatic stress disorder than if you were some distance away. There was an interesting piece of research following the 9-11 attacks in New York that showed that those individuals who lived um, closer to where the actual Twin Towers were were more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder than those people who were still living in Manhattan but further away around Central Park, for example. Um, if you dissociate at the time of the trauma, so you become distant to it, you feel as if you're um, not experiencing it in real time, for example, things seem to be going in slow motion, or you feel you're having an out-of-body experience, then those are definitely associated with higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, as is the level of distress at the time. So if you're more distressed at the time, you do have a greater risk of going on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Interestingly, one of the factors that's most associated with the development of post-traumatic stress disorder is the perception of having received good social support or not following the traumatic event. So if you feel you have received good social support, you are less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder than if you haven't. And obviously that plays into the, the need for us to try and deal with the social needs of individuals and to help people to feel properly supported after traumatic events. Do we know why rape is, has a higher incidence of PTSD than other traumatic events? 
we don't definitively know, but I think it's often associated with a fear of, um, you know, being killed and severely injured at the same time. And it's mm -hmm. just the felt by a lot of people to be the ultimate sort of invasion of one's own, uh, you know, personal space and, and privacy. So people feel very violated as a result of that having happened. But it, you know, it does come up uh, again and uh, again as being the um, the single traumatic event associated with the greatest level of conversion, if you like, into post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Sarah, if we turn back to you now, you first talked about your symptoms to the GP. What happened when you went to see them? Well, he was great. Um, my my doctor, I don't, I don't go to the doctor very often. <laughs> so um, it took me a while to get an appointment um, as um, I didn't sort of see it as an emergency. And perhaps, you know, looking back, I should have I should have insisted on, a, on an appointment sooner. But um, I got to see Dr. Khan and he just listened and um, he said, you know, well, there are various options open to you. Um, but I think that you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. And when he said it, just everything seemed to click in my mm -hmm. head. And I thought, yes, I think I think I do. I'd had a little bit of exposure to PTSD through just kind of reading the newspaper and seeing it reported in uh, you know veterans from conflicts, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, when I read up on it um, on the Internet, I thought, yes, this is ticking a lot of boxes. So although the diagnosis hadn't really occurred to you before, you didn't. It didn't. Doesn't appear to be a shock when you when you found out that that's what he was considering. No, not at all. And in fact, it was quite a relief to know that it wasn't just me. You know, um, just being weak um, and just you know mentally not being able, strong enough to kind of cope with what had happened to me. So actually, kind of being able to put a label on what I was going through was was so helpful. And then. You know, once I knew what was wrong with me, I thought, well, now I know what, what you know, what, what I can do to get better, surely. My doctor gave me sort of several options and he offered me um, medication, which I um, turned down. I didn't want to go down that route at that time. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, I've, I've never had to uh, go on medication, you know, which I'm really proud of myself for, actually. Mm. Um, but he explained that there were um, quite, long, a quite, quite a long waiting list to see um, uh, a psychiatrist. Um, but he made some calls for me to um, the mental health kind of triage service. And by the time I got home from the GP surgery, I was um, telephoned by by a nurse who just kind of asked me a few more questions and um, just ran through some various options. And one of the options that she um, she asked me if I'd like to consider was going on a trial um, run by Cardiff University for sufferers of PTSD, and I could start that pretty you know pretty much immediately, and, and that's what I decided to do. Jonathan, you've written extensively about the diagnosis of the condition in the review, and I'd refer people to that to find out more. But one interesting point is that the different criteria that exist for PTSD mean that people might be diagnosed differently depending on the criteria used. Could you explain a bit more about that? Yes, there are there are two systems that are commonly used to diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder. The International Classification of Diseases from the World Health Organization and also the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of mental disorders from the American Psychiatric Association. One of the interesting things is that the two systems have diverged to 
a degree, and so the criteria for the diagnosis have changed. Within the DSM-5, you have a new group of symptoms called negative alterations in cognitions and mood. Within the ICD-11, those criteria don't come into it at all, so you're not required to have those symptoms to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. The, the ICD system has moved towards simplifying the criteria with the aim of making them more specific for core features of post-traumatic stress disorder to aid with clinical utility. So it seems that patients might fall into a diagnosis in one criteria but not in the other. Yes, indeed, and we've done some research on that in Cardiff and we find that um, only around 50% of people or 60% of people will fulfil the criteria for both conditions at the same time and then you'll have a group of people that would fulfil the ICD criteria but not the DSM and vice versa. Mm. The ICD-11 has also introduced a new diagnostic category called complex post-traumatic stress disorder where you need the same symptoms as I've just described before plus severe and pervasive problems in affect regulation. So in other words, difficulties regulating your, your mood, your emotions, um, getting very upset and not being able to control it, for example. Um, persistent beliefs about oneself as being diminished, defeated or worthless. And also persistent difficulties in sustaining relationships, so interpersonal relationship difficulties. And this difficulty regulating emotions and difficulties in interpersonal relationships are certainly two of the key features that we see in a, um, a secondary care traumatic stress service as being um, key issues that people present to us with. Once someone has a diagnosis of PTSD, what can be offered to them? Well, there are a variety of treatments that have been shown to be effective in post-traumatic stress disorder. The best evidence is for trauma-focused psychological treatments, um, primarily trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy in a variety of different forms, and also eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing. Pharmacological treatments, primarily antidepressants, can also be helpful, but the evidence isn't quite as strong. And interestingly, the evidence does vary between different drugs. So in a recent um, systematic review that we conducted in Cardiff, we found that the drugs with the best evidence of effect were paroxetine, fluoxetine, sertraline and venlafaxine. And what about patients who might not have easy access to the therapies that are most sort of successful? What would what should doctors do in those cases? In in cases where access is a problem, then I think that you have to default to what is available. Despite the fact that I've said that the trauma-focused therapies um, are the most effective, which they do appear to be, and evidence supports that, they aren't as widely available as non-trauma-focused therapies. And non-trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy, for example, stress management techniques, can significantly reduce symptoms in PTSD sufferers. So that kind of therapy can be helpful. And also, of course, the absence of psychological treatment or a long waiting list for psychological treatment um, would make a practitioner more likely to recommend um, one of the medications that I just mentioned. 
Sarah, obviously you're an unusual case in that you were enrolled into a clinical trial. Other patients' experiences will vary, but tell us about the improvements you felt after the trial. What changes did you recognise in yourself? Well, straight away, um, uh, some of the sort of the techniques, um, some of the breathing techniques that the programme taught me, that enabled me to kind of get over any kind of sort of um, sort of rising kind of feelings of panic or being overwhelmed. And so I was able to sort of employ those techniques really rapidly. Mm. And so I could kind of limit um, my exposure to, you know, those episodes. Um, things like um, techniques to sort of um, rest better and, and sleep better. Um, and just kind of things that I could do just to sort of be in my house and, and, and be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I was also able to talk about what I was doing um, with my family and friends. And I will say some of them had a few reservations about kind of having to write this very vivid account of what it, uh, about what had happened mm-hmm. to me because they thought, oh, gosh, no, you should just sort of try and bury it away and not rake it all up again. But actually, that was the pivotal point, and that's what really, really helped me to try and get better. Jonathan, Sarah has obviously done really well, but what is the general prognosis after treatment for PTSD? Well, in most studies um, of the effective treatments, then around 50% of people at least would um, find significant improvement in their symptoms. Um, unfortunately, that does leave a significant number who who don't. If you try another treatment or augment the treatments that have been used already, then you can increase the number of responses to a degree. But the bottom line is that probably around a third of individuals will be left with an enduring chronic condition despite treatment. Sarah, building on your experience, what advice would you give to health professionals who might not know much about PTSD but might be confronted with someone who is experiencing symptoms? What would you say to them? Well, I would say that there is a greater awareness of, of PTSD now. And I mean, maybe my awareness is, is peaked more because of, I, um, because of the programme that I've been through. But I'm much more aware now of um, reports on the news in the media, particularly I am a bit of a news junkie, so I'm, I do kind of tune into that stuff more. Um, but, you know, those st- storylines on soap operas about people who've got PTSDs, uh, PTSD, um, people who, you know, we, we, if you reflect on the, the news agenda over the last couple of years, if you think about the Savile effect, um, mm. a lot more people are now coming forward who have suffered traumatic experiences as children and having been abused. I think people are a lot more um, tuned in um, to the way that something traumatic that happened either a long time ago or even fairly recently can still have a devastating effect on, on people's lives today. Sarah, thank you. That's really interesting. We're very grateful for you talking to us about your experiences. Finally, John, there are some interesting developments when it comes to the treatment of PTSD that you talk about in the article. Can you tell us about some of those? There are several treatments being developed at the moment um, and explored further both pharmacological and psychological interventions. And one of the most interesting developments is trying to use medication and um, psychological treatment at the same time time, perhaps not independently so much, as trying to use pharmacological approaches to help individuals access psychological treatments and for psychological treatments to be more effective. So one of the 
you know, most interesting uh, developments of recent years has been um, experiments with the psychedelic drug 3,4-methylindioxymethylamphetamine um, with psychotherapy for treatment-resistant PTSD. Um, this is still very much in its infancy and uh, we don't know what the ultimate outcome will be, but there have certainly been some very promising preliminary results and there's uh, quite a bit of more research going on and planned in this area now. So there you have it, MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. Thanks to Jonathan Bisson and to Sarah Cosgrove for joining us to discuss PTSD. And if you want to find out more, their clinical review is now available on thebmj.com.